Think of a time when you felt confident. Hopefully you can think of at least one time. Let me be clear. I don't mean a time when you were overconfident. You felt like, I've got this, and then you fell flat on your face. Was there a time where you felt really prepared because you were prepared? Or a time where you felt like you had all the facts, you knew exactly what was going on, and you knew exactly what needed to be done? Maybe it was a military exercise or operation. You knew the mission, you had a good plan, you had conducted rehearsals, and you were even prepared for contingencies. Maybe it was a job interview. You had your resume in order, you had studied the company, you had done some mock interviews, and you even knew what you were going to say about what you had to offer to your future employer. Maybe it was an athletic event. You had put in months of practice, you knew your plays or your muscle movements like the back of your hand, and you had even researched the rival team, and you were mentally prepared for peak performance. Maybe it was an academic test. You had done your homework. You had studied ahead of time. No last-minute cram sessions or all-nighters for you. Maybe you had even taken some practice tests and gotten good scores, and you had a good night's rest and a hearty breakfast. Confidence can help relieve stress, and on the margins can even boost overall performance. And people pay lots of money for confidence. There are entire industries dedicated to providing certainty or assurance for the future. Retirement savings, investments, insurance of various forms, home, auto, life, disability, etc. Remember that old corporate slogan, peace of mind. It comes with every piece of the rock. That's from Prudential Life Insurance. And if anyone from Prudential is watching, feel free to send me some advertising revenue. I wouldn't mind that. We humans crave certainty. But as we learned in Kyle's recent series through Ecclesiastes, we live in an uncertain world. But is there anything in life about which we can be certain? Can we have assurance about anything? Today's passage assures us that we can have total assurance about some very important truths. As the Apostle John nears the end of his first epistle, the letter that we call 1 John, he wants to make sure that his recipients, first century believers and us today, had certainty or assurance about certain things, at least five things, in fact. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. So while you're turning to 1 John chapter 5, let's recap our sermon series in this book, which we are calling Basics for Believers. John uses basic, simple language, and yet he says profound things. We also came up with a periodic table for the basic elements of true Christianity. All throughout this book, that we have seen various tests for each of these elements. There's the truth test, what we believe. The light test, how we live our lives. And the love test, who and how we love. If the tests show that we don't have these three basic elements in our lives, we probably don't have true Christianity. Today's passage is primarily about truth, although it touches on the light test as well. These are truths about which we can be totally certain, about which we can have 100% assurance, things we can know. So 
in 1 John chapter 5, feel free to read along as I read aloud. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Notice first the audience in verse 13. You who believe in the name of the Son of God. And notice that John includes himself in this audience. He says, we and us, throughout this passage. This passage is for those who pass the truth test. They believe the important truths about who Jesus is, they believe in his name, and they are trusting in his work on the cross alone for the forgiveness of their sins. This certainty is for believers. But you non-believers and skeptics or people who are just uncertain today, you are more than welcome to eavesdrop. For the sake of your eternal souls, I urge you to listen in. I've got a five-point outline today. Kyle will be so glad to know that I'm using full sentences for my outline points today instead of my usual individual words or short phrases. To each his own, really. My five points are five things we can know if we are believers in Christ. Each of these points could be a standalone sermon, so I'll uh, bring up application points as we go along. These are five things that we can know, things that we can know we know and have assurance about. One, we can know we have eternal life. Two, we can know God hears our prayers. Three, we can know that we have been transformed by God and are protected by God. Four, we can know we are on God's side. And five, we can know that we know the truth. Point number one, we can know we have eternal life. We can know we have eternal life. In many ways, verse 13 is the purpose statement for the entire book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, John likes purpose statements. In his gospel account, in John 20, verse 31, he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The purpose of John's gospel was to get people to believe in Jesus and thus have eternal life. The purpose of John's first epistle is to help people know that they have eternal life. Does this sound arrogant to you, to say that someone could know that they have eternal life? This is a common reaction I get from people if I have the opportunity to ask them if they know that their sins have been forgiven especially with my dear Catholic friends. Now, don't get me wrong. I love my Catholic neighbors and friends, and I even went to a Catholic grad school. 
I've worked arm in arm with them in the pro-life movement and other causes, and my favorite Supreme Court, uh, Supreme Court justices just tend to be Catholic. But I have profound disagreement with how Catholicism defines the gospel. Anyway, when I have occasionally asked uh, some of my Catholic friends if they have assurance that their sins have been forgiven, they sometimes look at me with disgust and say, how could anyone be so arrogant as to presume that they know that they are going to heaven? Do you really think that you're that good of a person? There are world-renowned priests and bishop who say, bishops that say that they aren't sure that they're going to heaven. But this passage and many others in the Bible are very clear that believers can have absolute confidence that they have been born again, that their sins, all of them, have been forgiven. But how is that possible? How can that be? How could anyone have that kind of assurance? Because salvation is by faith, not works. It is not based on our performance or on our own innate goodness. And this is the consistent message of the New Testament and, if you study it properly, the Old Testament as well. There is no assurance if our goodness or our performance have anything to do with our salvation. This is why it must be by faith alone. So let's talk about the topic of assurance of salvation. Some of you know from personal experience what it's like to doubt your salvation, to lack assurance, to constantly wonder if you are on your way to heaven or not. It's miserable, isn't it? Now, I know the terminology that we use can be controversial. Assurance of salvation versus perseverance of the saints. Cheap grace versus once saved, always saved. Here's the bottom line. If, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have come to repent of your sins and to place your faith and trust in Christ alone, your sins have been forgiven. And you can rest assured that God holds you firmly in his hand. As Christ said in, in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of the hand of Christ, not even yourself. This can be a difficult issue, but if you struggle with assurance, I urge you to work through it. Talk to a trusted Christian friend or reach out to us here at the church. We would love to discuss that with you. This passage assures you that you can know that you are saved, so seek it. And don't stop until you find it. Seeking godly counsel can help, but no other person in the world can give you assurance. The best we can do is we can explain the gospel clearly, we can remind you of the promises of the God who cannot lie, and we can even help uh, you examine the evidences in your life to see if there's cause for concern or if there appears to be fruit of the Spirit. But that's all we can do. As a side note, uh, don't worry about whether you remember the exact time or place of when you first trusted Christ. Don't fret about whether you used the right words or whether you really, really, really meant it. I love the prayer of the father whose child uh, Jesus healed when he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That is a very honest prayer, and that's one I believe that glorifies God. Are you trusting in Jesus today? Are you banking on Jesus and his work on the cross today? It's not the amount of your faith that matters. Remember that, remember that little mustard seed. But it's the object of our faith that matters. If the object of our faith is Jesus Christ and not ourselves, our faith is secure. And don't let the tests we've been talking about in this series, the 
light test, the love test, the truth test. Don't let those uh, scare you. Obviously, the truth test is important because you need to believe certain things about Jesus in order to be saved. But remember that the light test and the love test are not tests for sinless perfection in this life. Those tests are all about the overall pattern of your life. Do you have a desire to live in a way that pleases God? Do you have some love, if imperfect, for God and for God's people? Really, I think the three tests aren't really meant so much to give assurance so much as they are to deprive unbelievers of false assurance. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the armor of God. And I believe that at least one of the meanings for the helmet of salvation is the assurance that we can have that we have been saved, that we have eternal life. That assurance that gives us the courage to wage spiritual warfare for the glory of God. And speaking of spiritual warfare, if we are confident in our salvation, it will also give us confidence in our prayer life. Point number two, we can know God hears our prayers. We can know God hears our prayers. Now let's look at verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that, have we, that we have asked of him. Notice the confidence in these verses, but also notice the qualifier, the confidence. We see phrases like, the confidence we have toward him, and we know. But also notice the qualifier. These promises apply only to prayers according to his, God's, will. It does not show a sinful lack of faith to qualify your prayers to God with a, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You know how I know that? Because that's how Jesus Christ himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. God hearing our prayers does not mean that we always get exactly what we ask for in the time frame that we ask it. God is not a great vending machine in the sky. Uh, there is a great scourge in our world today uh, that would have you believe otherwise. We call it the prosperity gospel. It elevates health and prosperity over our need for forgiveness of sins. And it is a false gospel. Let me share a personal illustration. When my father was dying from a stroke in a hospital bed over 10 years ago, my family and I prayed specifically and earnestly that God would save my father's life. We also prayed that God's will would be done. We prayed that God would be glorified either in my father's life or in his death. Did my father die because of our lack of faith? Did he die because we didn't pray the right words or have enough emotion worked up or because we didn't use the right prayer techniques? No. Did God hear our prayer? Yes. He surrounded us with love and comfort from our family and from our church family. He glorified himself greatly by the gospel presentation at my father's funeral, and he gave us great peace that my father's homegoing, as difficult as it was for us, was all part of God's good, sovereign plan we can have confidence in prayer. Can I share with you a practical application? Prayer is important, and prayer is powerful. Prayer doesn't just benefit us, it does. And prayer doesn't just glorify God, it also does that. But according to God himself, prayer works. James 5.16 says, 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer works, and yet we so often neglect it, don't we? What a ministry we miss out on by not taking our prayer life seriously. Some of you in this room are warriors. You are highly skilled, highly trained, and tough. You would be a nightmare to face on the field of battle. What if I told you that when you pray, you are engaging in close quarters combat with the forces of evil? Your prayer life is like assaulting the strongholds of Satan, firing a quad 50 at the onrushing legions of hell, calling down napalm strikes on the powers of sin. The ears of everyone in the room with a Y chromosome just perked up. Ooh, Dan's talking about violence. Tell me more. Well, there's lots of violent terminology in the Bible, so... Perhaps we too often speak about prayer only in relational terms. Maybe we should emphasize how prayer is also a grueling combat. When you make your prayer, you are making war. If you took your prayer life that seriously, imagine how it would help you resist temptation. Should I look at porn tonight? No, I need to be able to wage war in prayer tomorrow morning. Should I get control of my angry outbursts? or my gossiping tongue, or my lying tongue, or my worrying heart. Yes, I need to be ready for combat on my knees. Have I convinced you of the importance of prayer? Then have a plan. Have a set time of prayer, but also look for those opportunities to pray in the moment. Crisis situations, waiting rooms, long car rides, maybe when you would otherwise whip out your phone to scroll through your social media. Prayer is important. Prayer is powerful, so have a prayer plan. Well, verses 14 and 15 tell us that we can have confidence in prayer. But what in the world are verses 16 and 17 doing? Are they just random words? Is God seriously telling us not to pray for certain people? Let's take a look. Verse uh, verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Verses 16 and 17 can be frightening and are very difficult to interpret. But they are actually meant to encourage your prayer life and not to undermine your assurance. Let me give you the bluff. That's army terms for the bottom line up front. These verses are an example of a prayer that we can pray with total confidence. They're an example of a prayer we can pray with total confidence. Dr. Rob Plummer, a professor at Southern Seminary who also hosts the very useful Daily Dose of Greek website, really helped me understand this. But what is the sin unto death? Some scholars say that it's referring to what is called the unpardonable sin. In his commentary on this passage, uh, Daniel Aiken lists three options for the unpardonable sin. And I've listed them in this handy-dandy chart uh, down on the left-hand side of the chart, along with my yeah-but critiques listed on the right-hand side. So option one, it's referring to a specific deadly sin, a sin so awful, so horrific that God, uh, that's it, you're beyond redemption. To which I say, yeah-but King David. He committed gross sexual sin of adultery, and he tried to cover it up with murder. And yet, 
He repented of his sins and he was a man of faith. Also think about the thief on the cross who was crucified uh, with Christ. He began as a, on that cross as a blasphemer. He was apparently some sort of a thief, which probably meant he was also a murderer and possibly an insurrectionist against Rome. But whatever, at one point on the cross, he admits that he deserved that death. You've got to be a really bad dude to deserve crucifixion. But what happens to him? At one point on that cross, he confesses his sinfulness. He tells Jesus that he believes in him. And what does Christ tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Second option is that it's uh, something called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or blaspheming the Holy Spirit. In this specific context, if you look that up, it's where uh, Christ is rebuking the Pharisees who are accusing him of casting out demons in the, with the power of demons. And so some people feel like some sort of uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit where you attribute the powers of God to the powers of Satan. To which I say, yeah, but Paul. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He hated Christ and he hated Christians so much that he wanted to hunt them down, throw them in prison, or even execute them. And I'm sure if you had asked Paul at some point before his conversion, what power was Christ using when he did these miracles? I'm sure without hesitation he would have said that he did it in the power of demons. But you know what happened to Paul? He was converted. And uh, he was used by God to write a large portion of the New Testament. The third option is a total rejection of the gospel. And I think there's a lot of merit to this, but I still say, yeah, but we can't see hearts and people can change. So there's some truth to this, but again, that's not for us to judge who has or has not committed this sin. You want to know my take? The unpardonable sin is rejecting the gospel for your entire life, even unto death. That's it. There is no sin that God can't forgive other than refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, you still might need to suffer the just punishment for whatever crimes you've committed against others in this life, but there is no sin that, is re that repented of through faith in Christ is beyond God's saving power. But it's still not 100% certain that the unpardonable sin of refusing to believe in Jesus is exactly what John is referring to. John MacArthur sees two possibilities here. He's, uh, for the sin unto death that we see in this passage. So it could be referring to a non-believer, and it would kind of be like the unpardonable sin we talked about, final rejection of Christ. But it could also be talking about a believer, uh, someone who, commits a, who is a believer but uh, commits a sin that God decides to take them home early because of it. What are some possible examples of believers who might have uh, committed a sin unto death? Possibly Ananias and Sapphira in the early in the book of Acts who were struck dead for lying about their donation to the, to the church. Maybe they fit this category. Or some others, uh, it could be some of the Corinthians that Paul was speaking to in his epistles when he said, some of you are sick and some of you sleep, which is a euphemism for death, because you have eaten of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. In our core seminar this morning, we were looking at the book of Leviticus, and it's possible that Nadab and Abihu, the oldest sons of Aaron, maybe they weren't just being rebellious, but they were just, for whatever reason, did not follow the Levitical code in the fire they were offering properly, and because it was an insult against the holiness of God, he had to vindicate his holiness. These, these are some examples of what could be uh, a sin unto death, regardless the point here is not for you to try to guess who you should or should not pray for. Pray for all the sinners in your life, whether they are professing believers or not. 
These verses are positive encouragement to have confidence in prayer, and they are not a negative prohibition against praying for certain people. And one reason that I know this is because the Bible commands us to pray for those who are in authority. And uh, many world leaders, both now and throughout history, have been very evil people. But also notice an important point from verse 17. It says, all wrongdoing is sin. In other words, sin is sin. We dare not minimize sin. While some sins might be more destructive or even shameful than others, all sin separates us from a holy God. We must avoid the twin dangers of minimizing our sin or despairing over our sin. Again, the point of these verses is not to make you wonder if you've committed the unpardonable sin. Believe in Jesus today and you won't have to worry about that. Or to make you fearful that God might zap you with a lightning bolt and take you home early because of a particular sin. If you have trusted Christ, you can be confident that your sins have been forgiven. And if you are a Christian, you should be concerned about all sin, not just the sin that might cause the Lord to take you home early. What is the point of verses 16 and 17? That there are certain things that you can pray for confidently. If you are praying that a brother or sister in Christ be restored from their sin, that is a prayer that you can pray confidently. As Christ says, I will, that he, will, he promises that he will complete the good work that he has begun in us. You want to hear a practical application for this? When we see a brother or sister in Christ's sin, our first instinct should be to tell God, not other people. That's what we call gossip. This point about being confident in prayer got me thinking about other examples of prayers which we can be um, praying confidently. We should be confident about prayers for the glory of God. I will be exalted, says the Lord in the Psalms, and hallowed be thy name, as how we are instructed to pray in the Lord's Prayer. We must also be mindful of other obstacles to prayer. The Psalms say that if we regard or we permit iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Husbands are also instructed to love their wives and treat them well so that their prayers be not hindered. Sin is an insult to God, sin is harmful to others, and sin hinders our prayer. Praying for a sinning brother or sister is one example of a confident prayer that reminds us that we can be confident in prayer. But these, also, but these verses also serve as connecting tissue to our next point about how Christians should live their lives. Point number three, we can know that we have been transformed by God and are protected by God. We can know that we have been transformed by God and are protected by God. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. When someone becomes a believer, a supernatural event has occurred. The Bible is also clear that a transformation happens, a metamorphosis. It's not always as dramatic for some as it is for others, but we've seen time and again in this series that true Christians live transformed lives. They will walk in the light. There's that light test again. They won't reach perfection this side of heaven, but the consistent pattern or lifestyle of their lives will not be disobedience. Not only is this verse another reminder of the light test, but it also gives us great promise of God's protection. 
Protection from the evil one. This reminds me of how Satan had to ask God's permission before he could do anything to Job. And I think we hear echoes of Christ's prayer to the Father for his sheep. Keep them from the evil one. There is some discussion about who the phrase, he who was born of God, refers to in this passage. Some believe that it is clearly Christ, who was born of God in a manger and also born uh, at the resurrection, who protects us. It's Christ that protects us. Others think that the Greek grammar requires that we insert the word himself to convey the idea that believers have a responsibility to protect themselves in the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. Who knows? The way John loves double meanings Maybe he means both, because both are true. Also, we, we can have confidence that God will protect the thing that matters most, our eternal souls. This is why John Piper encourages missionaries going to nations that are hostile to Christianity with the reminder that all they can do is kill you. What are you feeling anxious about today? How could meditating on the fact that God is protecting you Help calm those fears. This verse warns us against complacency. It reminds us of the truth test, excuse me, the light test. But it also bolsters our confidence. Satan can't touch us without God's permission. But there's another thing that we can know. Point number four, we can know we are on God's side. We can know we are on God's side. Notice verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John loves contrasts, light and dark, life and death. According to the Bible, there are only two sides in the universe, Christ's kingdom and Satan's, which we call the world. There is no neutrality. There is no Switzerland in the cosmic battle between light and darkness. And this is not the first time that we have talked about the world in this series. Remember 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where we were uh, reminded that the world, which we are commanded not to love, is not the people in the world or the beautiful, though fallen, creation. The world is the evil world system that is in rebellion against God and for a time is ruled by Satan. I hope this gives you great confidence. We will win. Don't believe me? Flip forward in your Bible to the book of Revelation and you'll see what happens to Satan and all those who follow him. This should not make us arrogant or abusive, and it should not produce pride, but rather a humble confidence and boldness. Here's a practical application that I know will be relevant for many of you. How does this truth help you resist peer pressure? Why are you so worried about the acceptance or the opinion of those who are destined to defeat? Why are you more concerned about the opinions of battle buddies, bosses, neighbors, relatives, classmates, teachers, friends, people from the neighborhood you grew up in, than you are about the opinion of your Savior? Don't let the forces of darkness pressure you to betray your warrior king, King Jesus. Finally, the fifth thing that we can know. Point number five, we can know that we know the truth. We can know that we know the truth. Let's look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 
And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We see some form of the word truth three times in this verse. If we are in Christ through faith, we know the truth. Objective truth is a real thing, not this postmodern foolishness about my truth and your truth. There is only one truth. This verse highlights one very important, uh, one very important truth in particular, the deity of Christ. Christ is both God and man. It's an important truth because the gospel hinges on it. If, if Christ is not God, he cannot be our perfect sacrifice and he cannot be our great high priest. But don't think this is just talking about mental assent to factual information. We don't just know truth mentally. We know truth personally because we know Jesus. John 14, 6 says, uh, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we know Christ personally, we know the truth personally. In my favorite movie, the main character at one point says, I don't know what I know, but I know that it's big. So someone there laughed, realized, is figuring out what my favorite movie is. But if we are Christians, we can know what we know because we know who we know. We can know what we know because we know who we know. And this really connects us back to our first point in verse 13 about having assurance that we have eternal life. If you're struggling with assurance today, the best way to grow gradually in your assurance, besides making sure you truly understand the gospel and the promise-keeping God uh, behind the gospel, is to grow gradually in your relationship with Jesus. Some of you doubt your salvation because you haven't gotten to know Jesus, and so you don't fully trust him. Get to know him. Trust him. Get assurance. Do you have confidence today? Do you have assurance? You can. Accept the gospel. Admit that you are a sinner who can't save yourself. Believe in Jesus, who is the true God and eternal life. Rely upon his work on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And if you have questions about that, please ask one of us today. Don't leave here today without knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that you have eternal life. Do you have assurance? You can. God has revealed himself in his world, in his word. He has revealed himself in the gospel. We can know we have eternal life. We can know he hears our prayers. We can know God has transformed us and will protect us all our lives. And we can know that we are on God's side, the winning side. We can know we know the truth because we can read the truth in the Bible and because we can know Jesus, who is the truth. You can have assurance. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.